Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This fireside address, entitled But for a Small Moment, was given on September 1st of 1974 by Neil A. Maxwell then an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm delighted to be with you tonight, my brothers and sisters, to partake of the spirit that's here and that marvelous music. I wish you knew how much as a generation you inspire those of us who have the privilege of working with you. I want you to know that I regard you highly collectively and all whom I know individually with equal great expectations. The highest compliment I can pay to you is that God has placed you here and now, at this time in space, at this point in space in His kingdom, when so much is about to happen, in which you will be involved and concerning which you will have some great influence. It's because you will face some remarkable challenges in your time It's because the Church has ceased to be a kind of cultural oddity in the Mountain West and is now, therefore, a global Church, a light which can no longer be hid. It's because you have a rendezvous with destiny that will involve some soul-stretching and some pain that I have chosen to speak to you tonight about the implications of two things we accept sometimes quite casually. These things are that God loves us and loving us has placed us here to cope with challenges which he will place before us. I am not sure we can understand the implications of his love because his love will call us to do things at times we may wonder about and we may be confronted with circumstances we would rather not face. I believe with all my heart that because God loves us there are some particularized challenges that He will deliver to each of us. He will customize the curriculum for each of us to teach us the things we most need to know. He will set before us in life what we need, not what we like. And this will require us to accept with all our heart, and particularly your generation, the truth that there is divine design in each of your lives and that you have rendezvous to keep individually and collectively. God knows even now what the future holds for each of us. In one of his revelations, these startling words appear, as with so many revelations, too big, I suppose, for us to manage. In the presence of God, all things are manifest past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. The future you is before him now. He knows what it is he wishes to bring to pass in your life. He knows the kind of remodeling in your life and in mine that he wishes to achieve. Now, this will require us to believe in that divine design and at times to accept the truth that came to Joseph Smith in which he was reminded that his suffering would be but but for a small moment. I'd like to talk to you about some of those small moments 
that will come your way in life and which come to each of us, if I may. Let me begin by reminding you that we so blithely say in the Church that life is a school, it's a testing ground, and it's true even though it's trite. What we don't accept are the implications of that teaching, at least as fully as we should. One of the implications is that the tests that we will face are real. They are not going to be things we can do with one hand tied behind us. They are real enough that if we meet them, we shall know that we have felt them because we will feel them deeply and keenly and pervasively. Christ on the cross gave out that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That cry on the cross is an indication that the very best of our Father's children found the trial so real, the test so exquisite and so severe, that he cried out, not in doubt of his Father, but wondering why at that moment of supreme agony he felt so alone. And James Talmage advises us that in ways you and I cannot understand, God somehow withdrew his immediate presence from the Son that Jesus Christ's triumph might be truly complete and that it might be that experience which only he could undergo for us all. If we wish to derive from Gethsemane and Calvary the things we need to know appropriate to our own lives, they would include these. That we too at times may wonder if we have been forgotten and forsaken. Hopefully, we will do as the Master did and acknowledge that God is still there and never doubt that reality, even though we may wonder why we are called upon to undergo some experience. A second lesson from Gethsemane is that we too may at times, if we are not careful, try to pray away what seems like an impending tragedy but which is in reality an opportunity. And we must do as Jesus did in that respect too. Preface our prayer by saying, if it's possible, let the cup pass from us. But bow in a sense of surrender to our Father in heaven's wisdom, because at times he will not be able to let us pass by that trial or that challenge. Because if it were allowed to happen, Everything that had gone on up to that moment would be wiped out. It is because he loves us that at times he will not intercede as we might wish him to. That too we learn from Gethsemane and from Calvary. It is interesting to me, brothers and sisters, to note that among the qualities of a saint is the capacity to develop patience, and to cope with the things that life inflicts upon us. That brings together two prime attributes, patience and endurance. These are qualities in the process of giving service to mankind that most people reject. Most people would gladly serve mankind if somehow they could get it over with once, preferably with applause and recognition. But to endure, to be patient in the midst of affliction, in the midst of being misunderstood and in the midst of suffering. That is sainthood. 
I'm struck quite forcibly by the idea that no man has yet become president of the Church of him who suffered so much, who has not himself undergone some special challenges previous to that moment. The challenges vary from president to president, but the way in which they cope with these challenges are strikingly similar. If we use Jesus as a model in the midst of the suffering about which we're speaking, then it is also noteworthy that even in the midst of his exquisite agony, he managed to have compassion for those who were then suffering much, much less than he, those on the adjoining cross or about him below the cross. How marvelous it is when we see people who are not so swallowed up in their own suffering that they cannot still manage empathy, even sympathy, for those who suffer far, far less. How many of us here may have undergone the embarrassment of being comforted by those who had more reason to be comforted than we, and yet recognizing in that act of theirs a saintliness to which we would so gladly aspire. If we at times wonder if our lot and our agenda for life delivers to us challenges that seem unique, it would be worth our remembering that when we feel rejected, we are members of the Church of him who was most rejected by his very own, with no cause for rejection. If at times we feel manipulated, we are disciples of him whom the establishment of his day sought to manipulate. If we at times feel unappreciated, we are worshipers of him who created and gave to us the atonement, that marvelous selfless act, the central act of all human history, unappreciated, at least fully, even by those who gathered about his feet while the process of atonement was underway. If we sometimes feel misunderstood by those about us, even those we minister to, so did he, and much more deeply and pervasively than we. And if we love, and there is no reciprocity in our love, we worship him who taught us love that is unconditional, that we must love even when there is no reciprocity. Most of our suffering, brothers and sisters, comes because of our sins. Isn't it marvelous that Jesus Christ, who did not have to endure that kind of suffering because he was sin-free, nevertheless took upon him the sins of all of us and experienced an agony so exquisite we cannot comprehend it. I don't know how many people have lived upon the earth for sure, but demographers say between 40 and 67 billion. If you were to collect the agony for your own sins and I for mine and multiply it by that number, we can only guess at what the sensitive, divine soul of Jesus must have experienced in taking upon him the sins of all of us, an act which he did selflessly and voluntarily. If it is also true that in some way we don't understand the cavity that suffering carves into our soul will one day be the receptacle of joy, how infinite Jesus' capacity for joy is. And when he said after his resurrection, Behold, my joy is full, 
how very, very full indeed his joy must have been. I should like, therefore, to speak to you on the premise that it is a part of discipleship for us to be prepared for these kind of rigors, that Jesus always levels with his disciples. He said, My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. That's hard, harsh doctrine. Peter makes it even more rigorous. Peter doesn't want us to take any credit upon ourselves for the suffering we endure because of our own mistakes. He is willing to see us take credit for the suffering we endure because of discipleship, but not because of our own stupidity or our own sin. And then Moroni reminds us, we get no witness until after the trial of our faith. That's the rigorous path of discipleship, brothers and sisters, about which I wish to speak, at least in this one dimension tonight, giving you some examples, if I may. If God chooses to teach us the things we most need to learn because he loves us, and if he seeks to tame our soul and gentle us in the way we most need to be tamed and most need to be gentled, it follows that he will customize the challenges he gives us and individualize them so that we will be prepared for life in a better world by his refusal to take us out of this world, even though we are not of it. In the eternal ecology of things, we must pray, therefore, not that things be taken from us, but that God's will be accomplished. What, therefore, at times about us now concerning our life may seem to be unconnected pieces of tile will someday, when we look back, make us realize that God was making a mosaic. For there is in each of our lives this kind of divine design, this pattern, this purpose that is in the process of becoming, which is continually before the Lord, but which for us looking forward is sometimes perplexing. I should like to suggest some traps into which we can fall if we are not careful as we try to meet the challenges that life delivers at our doorstep. The first temptation we must resist, brothers and sisters, is the Jonah response in which we sometimes think we can't escape the calls that come to us, that we can somehow run away from the realities that will press in upon us. Jonah, you'll recall, had been called to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to that urban center that was so big, we're told, it took people hours to walk across that city. He tried to find a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare thereof, hoping to leave the presence of the Lord. Now, you and I will one day know if we do not know now. There is no way we can escape from God's love because it is infinite. And how many times in our lives we might rather go to a Tarshish than a Nineveh, but he will insist that we go to Nineveh, and we must pay the fare thereof. Recently, a young man was called to his Nineveh, President of the Salt Lake Mission home, President Rawson told me and Sister Maxwell not too long ago, around May, a young man from back in the Carolinas 
came in on a Saturday to the Salt Lake Mission home, said to the president, may I see you? And the president said, surely, son, come into my office. He came in and he said, I need a blessing. Why do you need a blessing? I need a blessing because I'm the only member of my family who's a member of the church. And yesterday when I went to leave home, my father told me never to come back again. My mother wouldn't speak to me. And the only person who said goodbye was my little brother who came to the front gate to say goodbye to me. I'm on my way to New Zealand, and I need a blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the kind of devotion we must have, where the Ninevehs of life to which we're called are, however rigorous the circumstances are, we must, as this young man did, be willing to go and trust and surrender ourselves to our Father in heaven who knows why, in his divine plans, it must be so. A second trap into which we can fall is the naivete that grows out of our not realizing that the adversary will press, particularly in the areas of our vulnerabilities. It ought not to surprise us that this will be so. The things we would most like to avoid therefore, will most often be the things that confront us most directly and most sharply. Some of you may recall that the British military planners who built the fortress of Singapore, which was supposed to be invincible, fixed the guns of Singapore so that they would fire seaward. The Japanese very cleverly came from behind by land. Churchill and others were stunned that this citadel and this fortress had fallen so quietly and so simply. Some of us have guns that fire only in one direction. We are vulnerable, and the vulnerabilities will be probed by the vicissitudes of life. One of the great advantages of life in the Church and life in which gospel is at the center is that we can overcome these vulnerabilities. Otherwise we should be taken by surprise and swiftly. A third trap into which we can fall if we are not careful is to fail to notice that at the center of many of our challenges is pride, is ego. In most emotional escalations that I am familiar with, if one goes to the very center of them, there is ego asserting itself relentlessly. The only cure for rampant ego is humility, and this is why circumstances often bring to us a kind of compelled or forced humility that we may recover our equilibrium. Humility can help us to dampen our pride. Ironically, for those of us who most need to serve to develop our capacity to love, our very ego often makes us unapproachable so far as others are concerned. We therefore are underused, and we wonder why. And this is typical of the trials that we impose upon ourselves. A fourth trap into which we can fall is that we may at times assume that the plan of salvation requires merely that we endure and survive, when in fact, as is always the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is required of us not only that we endure, but that we endure well that we exhibit grace under, under pressure. This is necessary not only that our own passage through the trial can be a growth experience, 
But because more than we know, there are always people watching to see if we can cope and therefore may think they can venture forth to and cope themselves. Every time we navigate safely on the straight and narrow way, there are other ships that are nearly lost or which are lost, which can find their way because of our light. A fifth trap, and a major one, is the trap of self-pity. One man has said that hell is being frozen in self-pity. And indeed, at times, when we think our lot is hard or when we feel ourselves misunderstood, it will be so easy for us to indulge ourselves in feelings of self-pity. I like, in contrast, out of the history of Greece, that episode when several hundred Spartans were holding the pass of Thermopylae, that narrow pass, the Persians came in overwhelming numbers, urged the Spartans to surrender, and hoping to intimidate them further, the Persians sent emissaries to the Spartans saying they had so many archers in their army they could darken the skies with their arrows. And the Spartans said, so much the better, we'll fight in the shade. Now, brothers and sisters, the disciple has to be ready to fight in the shade of circumstance. One of the ways we can have perspective that will permit us to fight in the shade of circumstance is to read the scriptures and have involvement intellectually and spiritually with those case studies in the scriptures of those men and women who have coped and coped successfully who have most often undergone far more than you and I are asked to undergo. And when we understand that, we may then understand that God is totally serious about his purposes to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, that his chief concerns are not real estate and political dominion, but the growth of souls, the celestializing of the souls with whom he works. I am one of those, for instance, who does not believe the Mormon colonies in Mexico and Canada had much to do in the Lord's eyes with real estate or physical empire, but rather that these were established for the preparation of a people. And I call your attention to the fact that two members of the First Presidency have come out of those colonies in Mexico and Canada prepared beforehand for the mighty roles they now carry on in the kingdom. I don't think God's too interested in real estate. He owns it all anyway. <laughs> he does seem to be incredibly interested in what happens to us individually and will place us in those circumstances where we have the most opportune chances to grow and to carry out our purposes. A sixth trap into which we can fall quite easily, brothers and sisters, is the trap in which we sense that something special is happening in our lives but are not able to sort it out with sufficient precision and clarity that we can articulate it to someone else. That's so often true of the gospel. Tongue cannot always transmit the truths of the gospel. Their ideas and truths too powerful to be managed by us on occasions. Let me give you this simple illustration of how we can know something and not be able to communicate it fully, especially without the help of the Spirit. 
If I were to bring one of you into this hall and it, instead of all of you, were filled with 15,000 mothers, and I were to say to you, somewhere in that audience is your mother, find her, you could do it, and I suspect it wouldn't take you very many minutes. But if I said to you, wait outside, there are 15,000 mothers in there, and one of them is your mother. Now you describe her for me with sufficient precision and clarity that I can go find her, and you couldn't do it. Yet you would know what she looks like, but tongue could not transmit what you know. It is that way often with the gospel, and why we are so in need of the Spirit so that knowledge can arc like electricity from point to point, aided and impelled by the Spirit, without which we are simply not articulate enough to speak of things which we know. It would be interesting, for instance, if I were to ask one of you to describe to our satisfaction here the color yellow. Yellow, of course, is a primary color, but it would be difficult for you to describe it to us without comparing it with other colors. And yet you have no difficulty recognizing yellow when you see it. We know more than we can tell. And sometimes the things we know take the form of knowledge about what is happening to us in life in which we sense purpose, in which we sense divine design, but which we cannot speak about with full articulateness. There are simply times when there are moments of mute comprehension, of mute certitude. And we need to pay attention when these moments come to us, because God will often give us the assurances we need, but not necessarily the capacity to transmit these assurances to anyone else. I should like to share with you at this moment, if I may, a highly personal experience. I will not mention the name of the man involved. I mention it only because of my own tendency, and those on the stand and elsewhere who know me know that I am often too verbal, and silence does not come easily to me. But fortunately, on this occasion, there was a kind of mute comprehension on my part that the most important thing I could do was to be still. A few days after April conference, a very bright, able, professional man called my secretary for an appointment. Fortunately, she gave it to him, and fortunately it was of sufficient duration that there was time for the chemistry of this experience to operate. When he came in, we greeted each other. I frankly was not sure of the purpose of his visit. I assumed it might even be that he had come to gripe a bit about the Church. There are portions of our time as general authorities that are given over to being ombudsman, and I thought I might well be in for that kind of visit. But I said nothing and sat down. I resisted the temptation to fill the silence that then ensued. Tears welled up, filling his eyes. It seemed to me we must have sat there for ten minutes, but I'm sure it was only three or four. I kept still resisting the temptation to rush in with supporting words and simply let the Spirit operate. And then out it came, a marvelous, manly confession 
in which he said, for him to become fully active in the kingdom again, it was necessary that he set certain things right, and that over the years he felt he had been unfair to me and unkind to me, and he wanted to come and confess it and to ask for forgiveness. I again resisted the temptation, which by then was strong, to rush in with some superficial reassurances that might put him at ease. As thoughts tumbled on thoughts and verbalizations on verbalizations, this sweet man cleansed his soul. Indeed, I had not felt injured by him. I was not aware. But it would have been folly for me to have so said before there was full closure in the matter at hand. He is a marvelous sweet man. I admire his courage. He said even that morning he wondered if he could come or if he shouldn't cancel the appointment. I love him. We embraced and have stayed in close contact since. He is making marvelous progress in the kingdom. I'll always be grateful for that sensing of mute comprehension that something special was about to happen that I couldn't describe, but in which my role for that occasion was to be still and to listen. There are times when life will visit us with challenges in which we will have a mute comprehension of what is underway, but we cannot transmit it fully to someone else. A seventh trap, brothers and sisters, is that some of us neglect to develop multiple sources of satisfaction. And when one of the wells upon which we draw dries up, there is death, there is disaffection, there is physical ailment. We then find ourselves very thirsty because instead of having multiple sources of satisfaction in our lives, we become too dependent upon this or upon that. How important it is in the symmetry of our soul that we interact with all the gospel principles and with all the church programs so that we do not become so highly specialized that if we are deprived of that source of satisfaction, indeed we are in difficulty. It is possible to be incarcerated within the principle of one within the prison of one principle. It is possible to be incarcerated within the prison of one principle. We're less vulnerable if our involvements with the kingdom are across the board. We're less vulnerable if we care deeply about many principles and not simply a few. An eighth trap to be avoided, brothers and sisters, is the tendency we have, rather humanly, rather understandably, to get ourselves caught in peering through the prism of the present and then distorting our perspective about things. Time is of this world. It is not of eternity. And we can, if we are not careful, feel the pressures of time and see things in a distorted way. And how important it is that we see things as much as possible through the lens of the gospel with its eternal perspectives. I should like, if I may, to share with you on this issue the fine writing of your own Dr. A. Lester Allen, a dean and scientist on this campus. 
This is what I have come to call the Allen analogy about time. Let me read you these lines, if I may. Their application, I think, will be obvious. Dean Allen writes, Suppose, for instance, that we imagine a being moving on to our Earth whose entire lifespan is only one one-hundredth of a second. Ten thousand years for him, generation after generation, would be only one second of our time. Suppose this imaginary being comes up to a quiet pond in the forest where you are seated. You have just tossed in a rock and are watching the ripples. A leaf is fluttering from the sky, and a bird is swooping over the water. He would find everything absolutely motionless. Looking at you, he would say, in all recorded history, nothing has changed. My father and his father before him have seen that everything is absolutely still. This creature called man has never had a heartbeat and has never breathed. The water is standing in stationary waves as if someone had thrown a rock into it. It seems frozen. A leaf is suspended in air, and a bird has stopped right over the middle of the pond. There is no movement. Gravity is suspended. This being's concept of time is so different from ours, it would give him an entirely different perspective of what we would call reality. Then Dean Allen continues, Suppose, on the other hand, another imaginary creature for whom one second of his time is 10,000 years of our time were to appear. What would the pond be like to him? By the time he sat down beside it, taking 15,000 of our years to do it, the pond would have vanished. Individual human beings would be invisible, since our entire lifespan would be only one one-hundredth of one of his seconds. The surface of the earth would be undulating as mountains are built up and worn down. The forest would persist but a few minutes and then would disappear. His concept of reality would be much different than our own. That's the most clever way I have seen time and eternity dealt with. It is very important that we not assume the perspectives of mortality in making the decisions that bear on eternity. We need the perspectives of the gospel to make decisions in the context of eternity. We need to understand we cannot do the Lord's work in the world's way. Now, brothers and sisters, may I prepare to close with these thoughts. The Church is Christ-centered. It is really the only Christ-centered Church left upon the earth. If one wishes to get particular about the nature of a Christ-centered Church. The Church is Christ-powered, and it is designed to help its members become more Christ-like. Since the gospel of Jesus Christ focuses on the truths that deal with everlasting things and not on obsolescent realities, it is very important for us, brothers and sisters, to recognize that the truths in which we traffic as members of the kingdom pertain to eternity as well as to this life. I am surprised, I would be amused if the cost were not so great. I am surprised that people think they can remove the foundations of our social structure, things like chastity and family, and then wonder why rocks fall on their heads. You can't take the foundation of a building out and not be hit with falling plaster. 
And we are in the interesting position in the kingdom now of trying to warn about what is happening and at the same time of keeping ourselves personally secure in a world that is headed in opposite directions. We must be Christ-centered individually. We must have His and God's power to do our work, and we must take seriously the challenge of becoming more Christ-like. You're going to go out into a world full of marshmallow men, like the act of putting a finger into a marshmallow. There's no core, there's no center, and when one removes his finger, it resumes its former shape. We're in a world of people who want to yield to everything, to every fad and to every fashion. And it is incredibly important that we be committed to the core, to the things that really matter, which our Father in Heaven has leveled with us about through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His prophets. I saw an interesting cartoon not too long ago that bears on this point of marshmallow men. It showed two desert lizards conversing, and one said to the other, Of course you're going through an identity crisis. You're a chameleon. Of course the world is going through an identity crisis. It's got no anchor. It does not have core principles upon which it rests. My son and I were amused by a sign we saw recently in Europe in which I'm sure quite sincerely those who'd posted the sign were attempting to say something significant. Their message was that their principles never changed, but their beliefs did. I'm not a logician, but I assume that's only possible if your beliefs are not related to your principles. I'm grateful that our beliefs are related to the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful that God has told us that we must be ready for the trials that life will bring our way. I speak to this generation in a sense, therefore, of preparation for you, and I suppose some sense of vicarious anticipation in your behalf for what lies ahead, urging you to pour out your heart in supplication and prayer. There is nothing more powerful than prayer, more masculine, more feminine at the same time than prayer. There was more power processed and expended on that night in Gethsemane in that small garden than all the armies and navies have expended power in all the battles on land and sea and in the air in human history. There was more good done in that garden that night because of prayer and because of suffering than have been achieved by all the social, political, and economic programs that one sees strewn down the long corridor of human history. The catalyst of prayer permitted Jesus to cope with suffering, and by his suffering he emancipated all men from death and made possible eternal life. This cardinal fact about the central act of human history, the Atonement, ought to give us pause, therefore, as we face our challenges individually. I believe it was George MacDonald, a Scottish minister, who said, we never can really get close to another person except by loving them. 
and that the giving of love is more significant than the receiving of love, even though we all need to receive it. This same MacDonald reminded us that the only door out of the dungeon of selfishness is the love of one's neighbor. How proud we ought to be in a quiet way that we are members of a church of the most selfless being who ever lived. How proud we ought to be to belong to a church that makes specific demands of us and gives us specific things to do and marks the straight and narrow way lest we fall off one side of the precipice or the other. I am so grateful that God resisted the urge that is so profound in secularism now when it goes to frame values. Had he been so constructed, the Ten Commandments might have said simply, Thou shalt not be a bad person. Note what they say, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. The gospel of Jesus Christ is specific because God cares specifically for each of us, and caring for us will mark the way lest we fall. A vague creed is fit, fitted only for a vague God. We have a Father who loves us specifically and gives us things to do, and because he loves us will cause us at times to have our souls stretched and to be fitted for a better world by coping with life in this world. May God bless us with that kind of commitment and the capacity to be serious disciples and to accept the agenda that he has prepared for each of us because he loves us and the curriculum which he has prepared for each of us, which he has customized to teach us the things we most need to know because he loves us. There is a man I hope someday to meet, a brother of yours and mine in the kingdom. He lives behind the Iron Curtain. Another man, a priesthood leader behind the Iron Curtain, was told that there was such a man who had not seen another member of the Church for many years. This good brother, moved by the Spirit, saved his money, which he didn't have much of, made his way through the red tape of crossing borders, and found this brother of yours and mine and learned that he had not seen another member of the Church for over twenty years. And when the man who was the finder indicated that it was possible, because he had been so authorized to give this brother a patriarchal blessing, this good brother demurred momentarily and then went and got tithing which he had saved for over twenty years and gave it to this other man so that he would be fully worthy of that blessing. I don't know what the divine design is in the challenge of that kind of solitude. I know that he is meeting that challenge. Some of us will have to be most courageous not when we're alone, but when we're in a crowd. Whatever the form the test takes, we must be willing to pass it. We must reach breaking points without breaking. And we must be willing, if necessary, to give up our lives, not because we have a disdain for life, as some do, but even though we love life, because we are the servants of him who did that in such an infinite way.
I testify to you in the solemnity of my soul that we are prophet-led, that this is the Church of Jesus Christ, presided over by a prophet who himself knows a great deal about its suffering, who has been sweetened and deepened by that experience, as we all will. We are the servants of him who suffered most, that we might have with him a fullness of joy. May we be committed to that task this day and always. I pray in the name of him whose church this is, even Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.